Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover in this audio the first 18 verses of John. But before I do, let me give an introduction to the book of John. The author is the famous Apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, as he's often referred to. John, of course, was the brother of James. Both of them were the sons of Zebedee and Salome, Zebedee the father and Salome the mother. John was very prominent in the early church. He wrote this gospel. He wrote three epistles, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. He also wrote the book of Revelation. He's not mentioned by name in the gospel. This is natural since he wrote it. It would be immodest, I suppose, he thought, if he would mention his name, so he didn't. It's evident by reading the book that John knew Jewish life well. He knew messianic speculations, the speculations that were swirling around at the time. He knew about the hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans. He knew that circumcision on the eighth day trumps not working on Sabbath. In other words, you could circumcise on the eighth day if the eighth day was the Sabbath and not violate the Sabbath. So he's aware of rabbinic controversies. He knew the geography of Palestine. So he was thoroughly Jewish and familiar with the Jewish culture. Now, when was the gospel written? There are two main views as to what the date was. There's the late date. This is estimated to be somewhere at 85 A.D. or later. There's the early date, which would put him before 8070, somewhere between 8050 and 70, maybe in the 60s. What's the purpose of the book? What are the emphases of the book? Well, here are, some, here are five options. One, to set forth a fourth version of the Christian message, one that would appeal to Greek thinkers. We'll see right here in the first chapter. There's that famous Greek word logos that's very prominent. So that's one theory. He was just trying to write another gospel to appeal to the Greeks. Second option, is he was trying to supplement the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John omitted many details found in the synoptics, and that suggests that he said he was thinking, well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have already covered this. I'm not going to cover it. I'm going to cover something else. And as a result, we get a lot more information in the gospel of John in addition to the information in the synoptics. Third option as to why John wrote it, he was trying to combat some form of heresy, maybe docetism as in his letters, or especially his first letter, the first chapter of 1 John. He was fighting docetism, that Jesus was a ghost and not a body. Perhaps John is doing the same thing here. He's got a lot of anti-docetic stuff here, right here in the first 18 verses. We'll see as we go through. Perhaps John was trying to tell the followers of John the Baptist, hey, guys, you your, your man's time is over. It's time to switch over your discipleship, your loyalty to Jesus. John the Baptist is Kaputsky now. His ministry's over. People have a hard time making transitions. The fifth possibility of the purpose of the book is that he wrote the book with evangelistic motives. I mean, after all, John himself says that in John chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. Now, by believing you may have life in his name, it may mean by continuing to believe. This is written so that by continuing to believe you may have life in his name. And if that's the way you interpret that Greek verb, well, then the purpose of the book would be to build up believers as they continue to believe in Jesus' name. I don't think that's what it means. I think that he's trying to say, I won't, I'm writing this so that if you are not a non-Christian, you read this, you will believe. I, I know in China, when I would try to evangel try to uh, witness to Chinese students I would say you want to read the Bible let's read the book of John read the book of John all right with that background let's start with verse 1 John 1 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God famous verse 
Sounds very much like Genesis 1-1. In the beginning. Well, what does this mean? In the beginning. The word beginning implies time. Now this in itself could create a problem because God was before time. So it can't mean at the beginning of creation. Or it, well, I, sh I should say it cannot mean in the beginning when God existed before time existed. Let's put it that way. Because God's eternal and was before time. It means in the beginning of the creation. At the time the world was created. John Gill says it means before it means the time before anything was formed. And this is how the word is used in Genesis 1.1. As I said, it, it, the verse John 1.1 sounds like Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So it's the beginning of the creation. The beginning of all time and space and all created existence. I don't think that's a problem there. We see that at that time when, Jesus, when God, the Trinity, was getting ready to form the earth, create the earth, the word was there. The word. Now, this is the famous word logos, the Greek word. How did the Greeks use this word? Well, the Greeks said a spoken word was a logos, and they also said that if the word was unspoken, the word was still in your mind, and therefore it refers to your reason. Your reasoning is your thinking about words in your mind. So to the Greeks, the word logos would have a connotation of a spoken word and reason. And in fact, if you read Greek philosophy long enough, you'll see the Logos is talking about reason, the world, soul, reason, the reason, uh, universal reason that controls the world, the rational principle that governs all the universe. How did the Jews use the word Logos? Now, I must say here, the Jews, there were a lot of Jews that were Hellenistic Jews, and they were very much influenced by Greek culture, so they would be using the word like the Greeks would be using the word too, I suppose. But they used it as a way to refer to God. In the beginning was the Word, in the beginning was God. So, John used the Word that was meaningful both to Jews and to Greeks. If you think about it, the Greeks are so abstract and philosophical, the rational principle that rules the universe, but what would a Jew think? No, he, his, his rational principle that governs the universe is more personal. It's God, the Father, Yahweh. So that's how the Word was used, Logos, and here... The word is obviously referring to Jesus. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was Jesus. So Jesus is not a written word, but he's the word, so to speak, spoken by God, sent forth by God to the world. Jesus is the way that God expresses himself to the world. Now, if you think about it, a word is the way that person A expresses himself to person B. The talker expresses himself to a listener by uttering words. Well, God wants to express things to us. He wants to explain things to us. You want to know what God is, or who he is, or why he is, his nature, his characteristics? Look at Jesus, because that's the word of God. He is the word. Jesus is the word that God spoke to the world that we might know something of God. Jameson Fawcett and Brown puts this in words, which are eloquent in a way that I can't, cannot. Quote, he who is to God what man's word is to himself the manifestation or expression of himself to those without him. So Jesus, Jesus tells us about God because he's the word of God. He's the word that God speaks. Now notice in John 1.1 that the scripture says the word was with God. Now this shows that the son, the word, is distinct from the father. He is a different person, but he's not a different God because the word was with God. So that phrase with God shows a separation of of persons. One God, two persons. Of course, the third person is the Holy Spirit. He's not mentioned in this verse. So the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, when it says the Word was God, that means 
even though the Word was separate from God, he at the same time was God. So he's one God in two persons. This is a verse that's very important to establish the Trinitarian doctrine, the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, of course, we need to mention the fact that Jehovah's Witness completely screw this verse up and they say the Word was with God and the Word was a God. The Greek does not support that. No decent translation. The only translation that says that the Word was a God is a Jehovah's Witness translation. That's why if you have it, you should throw it in the trash. It's no good. The Word was God. Not a God. Not a junior God. We don't believe in Arianism. I mean, I thought that battle was over with in the 4th century. No, Jehovah's Witness has got to come knocking on my door. And then that's little white shirts and the black tie. Well, that's the Mormon, excuse me. But they come knocking on my door trying to tell me that Jesus is not the Son of God. They believe Jesus was Michael the Archangel, which is absurd. This prologue, verses 1 through 18, that we're getting ready to look at, it begins with a ringing affirmation of Jesus' deity. And we'll look at verse 18. It ends with a ringing affirmation of Jesus' deity also. Let's take a sneak peek at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. So there, verse 1, verse 18. Jesus is God. So go away, JWs. Go away. Now, I don't have time to get into the big Greek controversy over the A-God problem. It's a standard, if you're studying Greek, that's always mentioned. It's also, if you're studying the cults, you want to argue with the Jehovah's Witnesses, you're going to have to deal with that. I will leave that to you people who have cult ministries as a specialty. Go to verse 2 and 3 in John chapter 1. He, that's the Logos, the Word, Jesus. He was with God in the beginning. There's that separation, two different persons. He was with God in the beginning. In the beginning of what? In the beginning of the creation. Verse 3, all things were created through him. The context of that verse also tells you the beginning means the beginning of creation. All things were created through him, created ex nihilo. Notice that Jesus was just involved in the creation as was God the Father. Apart from him, apart from Jesus, not one thing was created that has been created. So Jesus is very much the creator God. Now we tend to think of Jesus and his humanity a lot, and a lot of times it gets lost in the shuffle that Jesus, in his divine nature, he created this whole universe. And there he was, walking the dusty paths of Israel, talking to human beings. Now this verb created here denies a very often held erroneous philosophical presumption that the world is eternal. It's amazing how many old-time philosophers, Greek philosophers, believe that. Aristotle is the most famous. But this verse shows that, no, God created the world ex nihilo, out of nothing. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says the whole thinking world outside of Judaism and Christianity held to the idea that the, the created world was eternal. Excuse me, that the world, the physical world, was eternal. Everybody believed that, but here through Revelation we know that the world was created. Now, a lot of Christian philosophers have spent a lot of time saying, well, can philosophy prove that the world was created and is not eternal, or can philosophy not prove that? Well, I don't care what philosophy can do. The scripture says right here, the world was created. That's the end of the eternal world idea. Now, again, showing the parallel with Genesis 1.1, which says this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John 1, 3, all things were created through him. You see the parallel there. Genesis 1, 1 says that God created the heavens and the earth. John 1, 3 says Jesus created all things, the heavens and the earth, if you will. So if Jesus is creating and God's creating, that shows that Jesus is fully God. Now, not only did Jesus create the world, he sustains the universe. Not only did he create the universe, he sustains the universe after its creation. 
We look in Colossians 1, verses 16 through 17. For everything was created by him. Everything was created by him in heaven and earth. That's another verse that proves creation ex nihilo. The visible and the invisible were the thrones and dominions, rules or authorities. That's either human thrones and dominions or even angels. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. So the creation is all through that passage in Colossians 1, verses 16 through 17, but also the sustenance of the world, the sustaining of the world. By him all things hold together. Jesus holds the world together. Not only did he create the world, he holds it together. Hebrews 1, verse 3, the Son, that's Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Well, that part of the verse is not relevant to what we're talking here. The, the, the relevant part of Hebrews 1.3 is the first part where it says that Jesus, sustaining all things by his powerful word, he holds it all together. All right, now we move to verses 4 and 5 of John chapter 1. Verse 4, life was in him, and that life was the light of man. That light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness did not overcome it. Now, in this verse, John uses two key themes that he uses all the way through this book, life and light. We'll look at that, and we'll also look at some verses that show how the scriptures tie life and light together. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's Jesus is talking about, how Jesus ties life and light together. And, of course, the opposite of light is darkness which he talks about also. Well, let's talk about life first. It's found 36 times in the book of John, according to my NIV study Bible. No other New Testament book uses it more than 17 times. So John really emphasizes this concept of life. I'm going to give you two example scriptures from John. John 10:28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, ever. No one will ever snatch them out of my hand. That's Jesus speaking. He gives us eternal life. John 14:6. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now this, of course, is referring to divine spiritual life. It's not really referring to natural life. Spiritual life, which is eternal in character and in time. Adam Clark says specifically it's not referring to natural life. So this is spiritual life is in Jesus. And that spiritual life was the light of men. All right, so much for light. Let's look at light. Here's some scriptures connecting life and light together. John 8:12. Then Jesus spoke to them again, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The last phrase of John 8:12 explicitly ties together the concepts of light and life. John says, anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. In other words, life is light. Life in Jesus is light, or the light of Jesus gives you life. Either way. Psalm 36, 9. For with you is life's fountain, and your light will see light. That verse, Psalm 36, 9, ties together life and light. For with you is life's fountain. In your light we will see light. Now, I've often thought that light is the the way that God manifests himself to us. I mean, after all, the Shekinah glory, what was that? It was light. It was a glowing fire. What did Paul see on the road to Damascus? He saw a blazing light. Light always refers to, to God, basically, to knowing God. And darkness is a, a metaphor that refers to people on the earth who do not know God. 
Here's what the NIV Study Bible says about it. Darkness says about the word darkness. It, it, the, the NIV Study Bible says that there's a stark contrast between life and darkness, and that's a striking theme in John. Now, here's some scriptures from John that talk about that. Jesus answered, The light will be with you only a little longer. That, of course, is referring to Jesus. Walk while you have the light. Walk while you have Jesus, so that darkness does not overtake you. So darkness here shows itself to be the absence of Jesus. And that's a perfect definition of spiritual darkness, is the absence of Jesus. Because people who are walking around in this world, screwing their lives up, creating misery and pain and despair and hurt and all that, they're walking around without Jesus. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going, doesn't know where he's going spiritually. Of course, physically too, if you're walking in darkness, you don't know where you're going. But what a perfect metaphor for the heathen person stumbling around in spiritual darkness. First John chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Now this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. Now this is from the letter of John, 1 John chapter 1. God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. Verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, walk in moral darkness, walk in evil, walk without Jesus. If we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. But if we walk, look, notice the truth, no truth. I am the way, the truth, and the light. I am the way, excuse me, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the light of the world. You follow me, you will have the light of life. I didn't emphasize that enough when I was going over John 8, 12. There's where John actually ties together light and light. You will have the light of life. That's Jesus. You got light and you got life. You know where you're going, and you'll live because of it. If we, first, Going back to 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, but if we walk in the light, walk in Jesus, as he himself is in the light. So in other words, if we walk in the revelation that Jesus gives us, the revelation which shows us which way to walk spiritually, if we walk that way, as he himself is in the light, of course Jesus is in the light. He knows where he's going. If we do that, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his Son cleanses us from all sin. So if we're walking in light, we're washed clean from our sin, and other Christians are washed clean from their sin. We can see them where they're walking, where we're walking, and life is nice and this veil of tears. Let me give you a quote from John Gill, who can say it better than I can. Quote, Man sins and is banished from the presence of God, the fountain of light, which brought a darkness on him, and in which Satan, the god of this world, has in hand. And sometimes they are left to judicial blindness, and which issues in worse darkness. Ain't nothing worse than walking in darkness, and you can get there real quick just by turning your back on Jesus. Darkness refers to the heathen world, Ephesians 5.8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So we, the Lord is light and we are light. The scriptures, These scriptures that I've just read shows that not only is Jesus light, not only is God light, not only is Jesus light, but Christians are light. We are light. And before we became light, before we became Christians, we were darkness. For you were once darkness. So we need to walk who we are. We're children of light, so let's walk that way. Now, verse 5 in John 1 says, The darkness did not overcome the light that was shining in the darkness. The darkness did not overcome it. There is a marginal reading for the verb overcome, and that marginal reading is, is that understood. 
that light shone in the darkness, Jesus shone in the darkness, Jesus shone in the heathen world, yet the heathen world did not understand it, which makes sense, but I don't think that's what it is. The NIV, interestingly enough, takes the marginal uh, reading there and takes it and puts it in the text and, and translates it as understood. That light, the darkness, the heathen world, the darkness did not understand the light. Well, that's true, but I think that darkness is more active than that. Darkness is trying to overcome the light. Darkness does not rest neutral. Darkness always tries to shut up the gospel of Christ and to persecute and to nullify Christians in every way that darkness can. John 1, verse 6, moving on to the next verse. There was a man named John who was sent from God. Now, John the Apostle is going to tell us about John the Baptist. John, the word John means grace or graciousness. John the Baptist had graciousness, so did, had grace, and so did John the Apostle. Verse 7 through 9. He, John the Baptist, came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now, Jesus being a witness, the idea of testifying or, or witnessing or being a witness, that's an important concept in the book of John, as the NIV Study Bible says. The noun witness or testimony is used 14 times in the book. That's a lot compared to the other Gospels. Matthew never uses the word witness or testimony. Mark only three times and Luke only one time. So the, word, the, the word for witness is used more often than anywhere else in the New Testament. And, of course, one of my favorite scriptures here is in John 10:41. Oops, that's not what I wanted to say. John 20:31. But these are written, these words are written, so that you may believe Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. Why are these words written? That you may believe Jesus is the Messiah. So this is one of the big deals to John is that Jesus is testifying about the light of heaven about his light, about his spiritual truth. He's testifying about it. Now, John the Baptist was a witness to Jesus, who is the light. John 10:41 says this, Many came to Jesus and said, John never did a sign. But everything John said about this man was true. Everything John said about Jesus was true. So John was the witness to Jesus. Now, the witness was so that all might believe through him. That word believe is used 98 times in John. I think you're seeing why John is a great book to give to people who are not saved yet or to baby Christians. It's got the fundamentals in there. Believe, see the light, avoid darkness. Easy metaphors to understand that you might believe, that all might believe. That's what John the Baptist was doing. He was testifying to Jesus. Why? So that all might believe in Jesus. Same reason, same thing that John was doing in John 20:31. I'll read it again. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in His name. Now, in this verse, there's a phrase in verse nine: "The true light who gives light to everyone, that's Jesus who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world." What does that mean? Was coming into the world? Well. It depends. It, many people say it means the incarnation. But let's look at this word world and we'll see that it might not necessarily mean the incarnation when Jesus was coming into the world. World. Let's look at world first. Then we'll talk about how Jesus was coming into the world. John uses the word a lot. He emphasizes it by repetition according to the NIV study Bible. It's used 78 times in the Gospel of John and 24 times in his letters. 
That's, a, that's over 100 times in his writing. Paul, who wrote more than the New Testament, only used 47 times, less than half. So John used it more than Paul, more than anybody. It has many meanings in John, according to the NIV Study Bible. It can mean the universe. It can mean the earth. It can mean the people on earth. It can mean the most people on earth. It can mean people opposed to God, as in the world hates Christians. It can mean the human system opposed to God's purposes. That's basically the same thing, the world that hates Christians. It can mean a lot of different things. Now, John moves without explanation from one meaning to another, and so you've got to be careful to catch the context of what he's talking about. Now, here he says that the true light was coming into the world. Well, if you just take world in its in its common meaning as into the planet, onto the earth, then that makes sense that Jesus was coming in, in by way of the incarnation. And I think that's probably what it means. The only small difficulty I have with that is the progressive sense of the word here was coming of course that's a translation problem too you probably could say came into the world i haven't checked that out but i'm sure you could translate it that way it's probably an imperfect tense but even if you translate it was coming into the world the all the events surrounding the incarnation would show progress you know from the announcement to the virgin mary to the events with the shepherds by night and then mary was went down to bethlehem and was born there was a process there so he was coming into the world through the events of the incarnation so i don't think that's a problem now there is a little bit of a theological problem here because of our friend john wesley here's how john wesley translate that translates that verse he says that it's translated as the true light i.e. Jesus, who gives to light, who gives light to everyone coming into the world. So it's not that Jesus came into the world, was coming into the, into the world at the coronation, but it's the true light. Jesus gives light to everyone coming into the world. So the idea is, is that Jesus gives light to everyone. Well, now we have, a, now, how does Jesus give light to everyone? Everyone's not saved. If you read the verse on the surface, you'll think, well, of course, that just means he gives salvation to everyone. Well, does it mean everyone, everyone without exception? John Wesley says that in order to protect his Armenian position, which says that God does not move on us with his irresistible grace first, but rather we all have the right, the ability to choose God, but he's got a problem there because we all have total inability because of the fall of man and because of inherited sin. And John Wesley believed in that. He believed in total inability, but he said, well, how can people choose God if they're wiped out, if their ability to choose God has been wiped out? <gasps> it's because the true light gives light to everyone coming into the world. So on the cross, during the process of the atonement, everybody in the world, bing, instantly got the ability to choose God. Well, you know, John Wesley was a great evangelist, but as a theologian, he is creative, and I think as much about creative theologians as I do about creative accountants. I don't trust them. That's not what it means. All right, well then, so if Wesley is wrong by saying the tr by saying that Jesus, the true light, gave light to everyone coming into the world, as referring to giving the ability to choose, what else could it be? Well, some people say that everyone refers to natural reason. John Gill says this. He gives that light to every man born in the world. He has the reason to, to reason out things. Of course, non-Christians do have the right to reason, the power to reason. I don't think that's what's that that's what that Jesus that John was talking about here 
I think he's talking about Jesus gives light to everybody that believes. Oh, but if it means giving light to everybody that believes, doesn't it say everyone? Well, listen, everyone does not have to mean everyone without exception. It can mean everyone categorically. It doesn't have to mean everyone, every last human being on earth, because everybody's not saved. It could mean everyone categorically, everyone without distinction, to the Jew, to the Greek, to the rich, to the poor, to the Easterner, to the Westerner, etc., etc., etc. And I think that's exactly what it does mean. Now, if that's what it means, then I believe that he's talking about spiritual salvation, spiritual light, not natural light, because God doesn't give natural light just to every group. He gives it to every individual individually. He gives it to everyone individually, without exception, all over the world, because all heathen, all pagans can reason. But if he's talking about spiritual light, he only gives it to every group that's on the earth. I think that fits in with John 3.16, which we'll get to later. For God so loved the world, it means he gave salvation to every group in the world. It doesn't mean that everybody gets saved. It's not what it means. All right, I need to summarize that. Who is this everyone? True light given to everyone. Everyone who has been given true light. Who is this everyone? All right. Here's option number one. It can mean all sorts of men. Everyone. Jew, Greek, slave, free, etc. Option number two. It could not mean different categories of men, just as I mentioned, but every individual person, and every individual person gets natural reason, not spiritual enlightenment, but enlightenment, but natural enlightenment. And option number so everyone there means, and and that option is everyone without exception. And the third option is, uses the same idea that everyone is all without exception, but instead of natural reason, it's the ability to choose Christ, which mankind had lost. That's John Wesley's option. So those are your three options. Now, notice that John Wesley uses another argument by looking at the Greek, and he translates the verse using a different option as to what is the subject of coming into the world. Is it the true light which comes into the world? The true light was coming into the world, gives light to everyone. That would be Jesus giving light to everyone. Or is it the true light? Jesus gives light to everyone coming into the world. In other words, to every human baby that's born into the world. The Greek actually, I think, favors John Wesley's view there, even though theologically it's horrible. So if you translate the verse that way, the true light gives light to everyone coming into the world. That means Jesus gives light to everybody coming into the world. So everybody comes to the world and has a chance to choose Jesus, and we can be Armenian. Well, I'm not an Armenian. I think that's nonsense, but that's the way Wesley did it. So there's a lot of theology in that verse. Let's go now to verse 10. Excuse me, let's go back to verse 8. Let's don't go forward here. Let's go back and read verse 8 again. He, Jesus, was not the light. He, John the Baptist, was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Now, what a testimony it was for John the Baptist to say that he wasn't the light. This idea is from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. It was necessary for, for John the Apostle to say that John the Baptist was not the light because John actually was a bright light. John 5, verse 35. The Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 35. John the, ba- John the Baptist. John was a burning and shining lamp. And for a time you were willing to enjoy his light. So see, John was a light. He was a burning and shining light. But his light was like a candle in the sunshine compared to Jesus' light. So when, Je- when 
John the Baptist says, John the Apostle says that John the Baptist was not the light. He was saying John the Baptist was not the light in a relative sense. He was not saying in an absolute sense, because in another place in John 5, he said he was a bright and shining candle. Now we move to verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Here's great irony. Here is the, the God who created the universe. He comes to the world. And the world doesn't recognize who he is. He came to his own. That verb there, own, is neuter. So we could say he came to his own land. He came to his city. He came to his temple. He came into his messianic rites. He came into all that stuff. That word is in, in, in the neuter case. Uh, excuse me, not the neuter case. The, the neuter gender. He came to his own and his own people. That's in the masculine there. So that's talking about people there. His own people did not receive him, the Jews. So the Jews didn't recognize him in verse 10 and verse 9. The world did not recognize him. That's all of us in the world, not just the Jews. We didn't recognize him. John 1, verses 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. So when it's, he says he gave them the right of the children of God, we didn't earn our rights. We didn't earn the right to be children of God. It was given to, to us. It was a gift. It was grace. Grace alone, as the NIV Study Bible points out. Now, notice that the grace was given to those who believe in his name. We believe. We, he gives it to us. We still believe. We respond to that grace. The imparting of the gift is dependent upon man's reception of it. According to the NIV Study Bible, which I think avoids a little Arminian-Calvinist controversy there a little bit, but we won't worry about that. The point is, when God saves you, he gives you the right to be children of God, you're going to believe as a response to his initiating irresistible grace. Or, according to your own free will, if you're an Arminian. But the point is, is it's God's grace for everybody that believes. If you, believe, if you believed, it was a gift to you. Don't go around saying, I believe Jesus. I sat down and I looked at all the... the the nature around me and the stars in the sky, and I just figured it out that God was God and that Jesus is the Son of God. And I read the Bible and I studied and I listened to my people who witnessed to me. And look at what I did. No, uh -uh. it was a gift that you believe in him. Notice that it says you were not born of blood. That means your human ancestry had absolutely nothing to do with your salvation. You were not born of the, of the will of the flesh or the will of man, what men wanted to do. Did you want to get saved? No, nah, you didn't want to get saved. You wanted to run from God as fast as you could. That will not born of the will of the flesh or the will of man, that really cuts against the Armenian idea of men being freely able to choose the salvation. I do not know how Armenians handle that. I'm sure they've got some way to get around those verses. I don't know what they are. Now we move to verse 14 in John chapter 1. The word became flesh and took up residence among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word, of course, is the Logos, Jesus. He became flesh. That's when he was incarnated, when he became the son of the Virgin Mary. He entered into time from eternity, took up residence among us. Now, he became flesh, which stresses the reality of Christ's manhood. Jesus was not a ghost. This verse is probably aimed at the dust of this, just like 1 John chapter 1 was. The, the dust of this were those who thought that Jesus was not fully flesh, fully human, fully physically flesh that he was just a ghost. John will have none of that. The word became flesh. He was fully man as well as fully God. He took up residence among us. The Greek word there is connected with tent or tabernacle. Some people, in fact, some translations say he tabernacled among us. This would have reminded Jewish, Jewish readers of the tent of meeting 
Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35 says this, The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The tabernacles where God lived, and his glory filled the tabernacle because he was in his house there. So the word took up, made his house among us, made his residence among us. Just as the glory of God filled the tabernacle, so also the glory of God filled Jesus. This is what the NIV Study Bible and Adam Clark point out. What does the word glory refer to? Well, John Gill says it refers to his miracles, his death, his resurrection. And Jameson Fawcett and Brown, in inimitable language, says this, quote, It's the glory of surpassing grace, love, tenderness, wisdom, purity, spirituality, majesty and meekness, richness and poverty, power and weakness, meeting together in unique contrast. So Jesus' glory, God's glory was in Jesus as Jesus took up his residence among us, God was resident in Jesus, and we observed his glory because of that. We observe God's glory. We observe God's glory because we look at Jesus. Jesus is the word that expresses God in this, in this world. The phrase glory as the one and only Son of God, the word as can mean, can be translated such as belongs to, so it would be the glory such as belongs to the one and only Son from the Father, or, that's according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, or it could be translated such as became the glory, such as became or was fitting for the one and only Son from the Father. Either way is all right. Now, that phrase, one and only Son, used to be the only begotten Son. That's the older translation. There's been a lot of discussion amongst Greek people about the way that thing should be translated. I think the majority of evangelical scholars have switched now to translating it as one and only Son. Only begotten is a little bit hard to fathom if you think about it because, for one thing, even though human sons are begotten from the Father, the divine Son was not born like a human being was. He was eternal. He was co-eternal with the Father, unlike humans. And so one and only might make more sense, even though the older theological versions had only, be only begotten. Now Jesus is said here in verse 14 is full of grace and truth. My NIV Study Bible says that the corresponding Hebrew terms for grace and truth are often translated as unfailing love and faithfulness. So if that's legitimate to see how the Hebrews would have translated it, we could say that Jesus was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. Grace and truth. Of course, grace is one of the most common characteristics of the Bible. Unfortunately, I think more people besides Presbyterians ought to emphasize that word grace. You know, you go around and look at churches in the South. Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace Presbyterian Church, but you don't often see Grace Methodist Churches or Grace Baptist Churches or Grace Pentecostal Churches or Grace Charismatic Churches. Why is that? Grace is everywhere in the New Testament. It's a shame that some Christians insist on turning a blind eye to it. Now this term truth, John uses the word truth 25 times. He's big on light, he's big on life, and he's big on truth. John 14:6. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We go to verse 15. John, that's John the Baptist, testified concerning him, concerning Jesus, concerning the Logos. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, This was the one of whom I said, The one coming after me has surpassed me because he existed before me. Now, the NIV Study Bible has a present tense there for John testifies. I don't know why the Homo Christian Study Bible puts it in the past. Probably because it's one of those historical presents that you can translate either way. But the present tense, according to the NIV Study Bible, says that the present tense signifies that John the Baptist's preaching 
John the Baptist's preaching was still sounding in the people's ears, even though he'd been killed a long time before this gospel was written. Well, maybe so, but anyway, sometime in the past, maybe even now in the present, John is testifying and saying, he's greater than me, he surpassed me. He came after me even though he... Well, how can you say he came after John the Baptist since John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus? Well, that's how you can say it. Jesus is six months older than John the Baptist, so that means that Jesus, the one, Jesus came after John the Baptist. But he's greater than John the Baptist. He surpassed me. He surpassed John the Baptist because he existed before me. How did he exist before John the Baptist? Not in his human nature, but in his divine nature. Before the foundation of the world, Jesus existed. So that means he's greater than John the Baptist, because John the Baptist didn't exist before the foundation of the world. He only began his existence in his mother Elizabeth's womb. Now, here's a quote from Matthew that shows where John said this, that, John, that where he John had testified concerning Jesus, saying that Jesus was greater. I'll read that in Matthew 3.11. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So baptism in water for repentance is one thing, but baptism in the Holy Spirit and fire is something else. It's by, done by somebody more powerful than John. John couldn't baptize anybody in the Holy Spirit. He can baptize them in water, but not the Holy Spirit. Moving now to John chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, we read this. Indeed, we have all received grace after grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, that little phrase after, that little word after in the phrase grace after grace is a little bit difficult to translate. People have all kinds of different ideas. So I'm going to give you some options. Here's John Gill's translation. Instead of, indeed, we have all received grace instead of grace from his fullness or in the place of grace from his fullness. And the idea is, is that the grace of the present dispensation, the New Testament, the New Covenant era, that grace has been given in place of the grace of the Mosaic dispensation, the Sinaitic legal dispensation. Now, John Gill and Adam Clark hold that, or at least mention that as an option. The Greek word, by the way, is anti, means for or instead of. Indeed, we have all received grace instead of grace from his wilderness. And that's the standard definition, actually, of anti is instead of. So it could very well mean that. John Gill said it could be for the sake of. We have all received grace for the sake of grace from his fullness. In other words, we have received the gift of apostleship, the grace of apostleship for the sake of preaching the grace of salvation. Well, that's very clever. Or, John Gill says it could mean we have received grace for the sake of grace in this sense, we have received grace in this life for the sake of grace in heaven, in the afterlife. We have all received grace for the sake of grace. We have received grace on earth for the sake of grace in heaven. Well, that's John Gill's idea. Or it could mean in the measure of. Indeed, we have all received grace in the measure of grace from his fullness. In other words, grace that is measured by the fullness of Christ. We have all received grace in the measure of the grace that comes from his fullness. We have all received the Jesus amount of grace. Well, okay, maybe so. But here is the easiest way to understand it. According to the way that Holman Christian Study Bible translates it, we have all received grace after grace. It means more and more grace, as John Gill puts it. We have received heaps of grace, as John Gill puts it. And that's the easiest way to understand this. We have received grace after grace after grace. We have received gobs of grace. And then... He mentions the law. For the law was given through Moses, and the idea is there ain't so much grace there. 
Why? Because the law was given to point out sin and to point out the need for grace. It was not given to give grace. It was pointed to show that you needed grace. It was pointed out to show that people are miserable, rotten, lousy sinners. But Jesus came to give us grace, to give us forgiveness, and to give us ultimate truth, spiritual truth, which we could not get by following the law. Now, this is a great verse for New Covenant theologians, NCT people, Unlike the Reformers, they say that all three-thirds of the law, the whole law is done away with, civil, ceremonial, and moral, and that the moral law is recapitulated in Jesus' law, the law of Christ, and that, and in that dispensation of Jesus Christ there is grace and truth, and there is a distinction between that, between that and the law of Moses. Whereas Reformed people are always saying, yeah, the law was Moses had the law, and Jesus had the law, ain't much difference. Flat. I wish... Presbyterians would see the light on that issue. It's just so depressing to hear them talk about the law, the law, the law. The law ain't going to do you nothing. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. Ling, nada, zilch, zero. That's the emphasis we ought to hear. Not all this business about, we got to keep the law of Moses. The law of Moses, we got to keep the Ten Commandments. Let me read a quote from Gill. Quote, the law elicits the consciousness of sin and the need of redemption. It only typifies the reality. The gospel, on the contrary, actually communicates reality and power from above. John Gill is exactly right. So why in the world we talk about the law of Moses? We've got to have the law or else we're going to go out and rob a bank? Need to ask the reformers that. Need to ask John Calvin that embarrassing question. Now let's go to verse 18. Reading John 1.18, No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side. He has revealed Him. This, again, goes along with the theme of Jesus being the Logos, the Word. You reveal Someone reveals his innermost thoughts by speaking a word. God reveals his nature, his character, by speaking forth the Word into the world because God has revealed Him. Excuse me, Jesus, He, Jesus, has revealed Him, the Father. And the reason that was necessary, because no one has ever seen God. And again, that's the idea John is saying, look, you can't see God, so you've got to rely on God speaking to you through the Word, through Jesus. So you can't see God, but you can see Jesus. You can look at his miracles, you can listen to his teaching, you can read his Word, and so, and so forth and so on. Now, the one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side, he has revealed him, the one and only Son. Of course, that's a technical term, one and only. is capitalized in the Holman Christian Study Bible. It means the unique Son of God. This is an explicit declaration of Jesus' deity. The one and only Son means God means the Son who is God. Now, it used to, the old-fashioned translations I mentioned earlier was the only begotten Son. But we'll go with the one and only Son, the Son who is God. Here's some other uh, scriptures where the one and only, the one and only, uh, phrase is used John 1 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God actually that's not where one and only is used but that is an explicit explicit declaration of Jesus deity the word was with God and the word was God John 1 14 the word became flesh took up residence among us we observed his glory the glory as the one and only son from the father full of grace and truth so you see the son is divine john 3:16 for god so loved the world in this way he gave his one and only son or only begotten as the old king james has it he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life so we see this is clear john is really talking about jesus's deity in chapter 1 now, John says no one has ever seen God. This goes along with Exodus 33:20. 20. 
But he, Yahweh, answered, You cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. Well, that's straightforward, easy enough, but there is a problem, because certain Old Testament saints were said to have seen God. Exodus 24, 9 through 11. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, that's up on Mount Sinai, and 70 of Israel's elders, and they saw the God of Israel, S-A-W, Saul. And they saw the God of Israel, all oh, but didn't Exodus 33 says, You cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. And yet those elders, Nadab, Abihu, Sebdi, elders Moses and Aaron, went up on the Mount Sinai, and they saw God. Beneath his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire stone as clear as the sky itself. God did not harm the Israelite nobles. They saw him, and they ate and drank. All right, we've got to reconcile that. Here are three options. First option, all Old Testament references that talk about seeing God are referring to seeing God the Son. This is John Gill. The so-called theophanies, the places where Jesus appears in the Old Testament. I don't think so. I mean, I mean, I guess it could be. They saw Jesus and they ate and drank up on Mount Sinai. Well, I never thought about that. Maybe that could be. Maybe Gill's right. I don't think so, but maybe he is. Option number two, how can you see God... When Jesus, when Moses said you can't see God and live. Here's John, another John Gill option. Moses' sightings were only the sightings of the accompanying phenomena. In other words, the elders up there, they saw the pavement made of sapphire stone. They might have heard a bunch of thunder and smoke and all that kind of stuff. You know, they only saw the accompanying phenomena. They didn't actually see God. I tend to think that's what the answer is. Or it could be God took on a temporary form in the Old Testament sightings so that Weak, frail human beings could look at him without getting fritzed. This is the NIV study Bible solution. Well, it's an interesting question. I don't know exactly what the answer is. My, my feeling is is that when you saw God, you only saw what was it where Moses, God took Moses into the cleft of the rock and Moses saw his backside, saw the backside of God. I just think it means God shielded his glory so that Moses could look at some of him, some of the phenomena accompanying his presence without killing Moses. Now, John here in verse 18 says that Jesus, the one who is at the Father's side, the King James has who is lying in the Father's bosom, lying in the bosom of the Father. This was in reference to the Asiatic custom of reclining at meals, as John Gill points out. A person next to one is said to be lying in his bosom. The one lying in the bosom of the master of the feast was in feast was in utmost favor and intimacy with him, according to Adam Clark. And let me give you a quote from Jameson Fawcett and Brown. Jesus being at the side of the Father, lying in his bosom, is quote presupposing the Son's conscious existence distinct from the Father, and expressing his immediate and most endeared access to an absolute acquaintance with him. In other words. There's nothing the Father does, the Son doesn't know. The Son knows everything the Father does. They created the world together. There's no division between the two, even though there are two different persons, to use anthropomorphic language. Now, there's another way you can punctuate this verse. The NIV punctuates it this way. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son. The Holman Christian Study Bible says no one has ever seen God, period. The one and only Son has revealed him. Yeah, you could do that. Remember, there's no punctuation in the Greek. The NIV punctuates it this way. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, putting the one and only Son in opposition with God. Will he do that? That really makes it clear that the Son is God. I like the way the NIV does it there because I like the emphasis that Jesus is God. You can't prove anything with the grammar or the punctuation, but it's a nice thought, especially if you're talking to a Jehovah's Witness. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I am finished with the first 18 verses of John 
and we will take up John the Baptist's ministry starting in verse 19 with the next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.